I mean, and, and I come back to what you asked about, who, who am I? I am an emergent system. I am something that has come about as a result of all the variables that could have happened over the course of my life to be who I am now. And there are multiple other me's that I could have been as a result of those variables. So I am an emergent property. This inhaler is an emergent property. The concept is an emergent property of what happened in my brain, but the actual product is an emergent property of the people who've worked on it, the serendipitous luck I've had in finding the correct materials, the individual influence that other people have had from a design perspective, from a pharmacology perspective, from a physics perspective. So it is emerging. It's not going to see, succeed or fail. It's going to continue to emerge. And even when it's in market, it will have emerged into market because of other factors that I still don't have any control over. So I'm very aware now in my life that fear of failure is not something I need to have, not because it might fail, but because failure isn't really a thing. This week's guest is Don Smith. I won't say much about Don other than the fact that he's an inspiring example of how transformation can occur in anyone's life. If you set your mind to it, take bold actions and seek help and advice from others. From a career as an advertising creative, Don is now the inventor of One Inhaler, a single dose dry powder, pulmonary inhaler, and also in development with his Kelp Systems invention, a revolutionary marine energy delivery system. I always learn a lot from my guests, but with Don, he really made me reframe my understanding and perception towards success and failure after he explained the concept of emergence. Don is not only a master storyteller, he's also a domain expert in the area of advertising and branding, and he's well on his way to becoming a difference maker in people's lives through his invention of the one inhaler. Now, over to Don. All right, Don, welcome to the Impossible Network. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for making the time. And where do I find you on this evening, or on this sunny afternoon in Austin? Where are you? Yeah. I'm, I'm having a cold evening in Edinburgh, so I've just <laughs> I've just returned from London. I spend I spend most of my time these days between London and Edinburgh, and I am I'm what is is as an acronym technically known as a willy. Work in London, live in Edinburgh. So that's a, that's a thing. There are trainfuls of people so, on Monday mornings and Friday evenings. Trains full of willies travelling back and forth between the two <laughs> cities. Oh, we could have a lot of fun with that. Well, anyway, before we get into some big questions about you, a little bit of an intro as to what you do. So in full transparency, we crossed paths many years ago at an ad agency in Edinburgh called Leith Agency, uh, where at that point in my life, I was a, an account director working on Tenants Lager account in, in Scotland. And uh, you were a young talented, up-and-coming, full of energy and ideas, creative working with your partner, Alex. And you've gone on to have a pretty stellar career in advertising, moving into the digital realm and really pivoting big time, probably more than any creative that I've ever worked with, to moving away from creativity for the benefit of clients to creating solutions as an inventor for the benefit benefit of humankind with your one one hailer invention mm-hmm. and some other bubbling under the surface ideas we'll mention as well yeah so 
without people jumping to conclusions about what I've just described, I'd like you to maybe start by telling us who you are as a human being, who you consider yourself to be. Okay. Well, that's a huge question. Uh, I'm certainly a different person. I'm certainly a different person now than when we first met. I think the two of us were probably relatively... Thankfully, we... Yeah, you wouldn't want to have met me on a train back then. <laughs> no, no, no. We were both quite cliched. I was a, a young, a young egomaniac creative with a ponytail, and you were the sort of the the suited and booted account man with the red BMW, if I if I remember correctly. So, do you remember correctly? Embarrassing. So we both evolved in many positive ways since those days. I'd like to think, but in answer to your question which is a great big existential difficult one. I, I've never really known who I am. I've always had an issue with that. I think there's a, there's a reality to all of us. It, us speaking today as who we are today is testament to that, that we are a, a constantly evolving, emergent property of everything that we are genetically, historically, the experiences that we have, the influences that we that we have, the good influences, the bad influences, everything crafts us. And there is no there is no sort of anchored individual me at any given moment in time. It's it's a constantly changing thing. And I think I think if one of the things that really does make me me is I'm kind of quite happy with that. I like that. I like that change. I'm open to that change and I embrace the I embrace every sort of lesson that comes to me in life and I try to sort of integrate that back into who I am. So mm-hmm. I guess I'm always trying to push myself into being the next iteration of of this this guy, this Don Smith guy that I I kind of know iterations of him in the past, but I'm not, I'm not entirely sure who he's going to be. I, I'm reading a book at the moment. It's across there on my sofa called Creative Hustle. It's, it's actually not a great title because I don't think it's about Creative Hustle. It's more about an exploration of self, giving lots of examples. It's a Stanford University publication. And it's got me thinking deeply about things I think we take for granted. What are our beliefs, our desires, and the resultant actions we take because of those beliefs and desires? It's a combination, as you say, a never-evolving, almost biological, metaphysical feast that we are. But anchored in all that are our principles, are our values, our ethics, our morals. Because you use these words willy-nilly in a way. You go, oh, yeah, what are your principles, what are your values? And coming from advertising, we spent a lot of time talking to brands about their brand values and their brand principles and their brand essence and all that. But really, when you dive into those words and go and say, well, if it's a, there's a hierarchy and, there's a, and they're all connected, what's foundational in it? What's mm-hmm. foundational in making you you? And mm-hmm. I suspect a lot of it, it, it comes down to your moral compass and your ethics, your outlook on life. And that, and that, that is what changes. So maybe I'm going to just throw this at you and go, well, OK, if you are evolving, what would you say your core ethics that guide you, your moral compass or your principles? What is it? What's important to you as you that makes you the Don Smith? 
It's very, yeah, it's a very interesting question. Very interesting on two levels, psychologically and philosophically. So mm-hmm. I think if you start with the psychological stuff, I have, I have the benefit of my fiance is a psychotherapist mm-hmm. and has studied psychotherapy for all of her life. So if I say something smart, it's usually going to be referred back to her being the smart one. And if she listens so, to this, you could never have said anything other than the benefit of her being a psychotherapist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's been I'm constantly in analysis and learning as a result. Yeah. But I, I, I often go back. I do like the ocean scale of, of the basic mm-hmm. foundational elements of it. So openness, conscientiousness, um, extroversion, agreeableness, neuroticism. Uh, so when I when I look at myself on that scale, I can understand some of the inherent traits I have, probably from a genetic function. I'm I'm very agreeable. I'm very conscientious. I'm very open. I'm not actually that neurotic. I'm quite a calm mm-hmm. person. And then which one have I missed there? Extroversion. Yes. Yeah, so I'm I'm mm-hmm. I'm relatively extroverted, but I'm sw- I swear I. The swings and roundabouts with that with me because I can really, I'm very happy in my own company, but I'm also, I've become confident in, in, in groups. So there's an element of me that is based on those foundational truths. And then there is the me that has emerged through the influences I've had in life, both from my parents and my other influences, siblings and friends and family and, and, and bosses and colleagues and all of the other people. And then there's this, the, the sort of this, the secondary deeper influence, which is the, the books you've read, you've read books you've read, mm-hmm. and the people who influence you from the past. It's that I always love that. I think it's Epictetus quote the 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 Stoic who said, "You really start to emerge in yourself once you start speaking to the dead." So you have to go through history and find the the, the lessons of the past from the from the writers of the past. So. So the on that front of the, the sort of moral and ethical thing, I think there are influences from, I always find this an interesting one, growing up in that late 70s, early 80s era, all, most of my influences were superhero films. So I, I loved the original Superman and all of the fundamental, fundamental hero's quest elements to the personality of Superman and the reference then as you get older and you read more the 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 connection to Nietzsche's Ubermensch, that overman idea and the kind of being able to transcend the the base level instincts of your of your nature. I think that's a been a huge influence. The whole Jedi thing from Star Wars, you know, the 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 fight between good and evil, the ability mm-hmm. to do the right thing in the right in the right moment. All those things I think have influenced me. And definitely becoming a father made a huge difference mm. because you go, okay, I have to influence this life that I've, that I've created and I have to set a certain amount of positive foundational values and principles on which he can not only hear, but he has to see mm. them. More importantly, what I say is one thing, but what I do is more critical for him in his ability to uh, to judge me effectively and judge what he should be or could be in relation to that. So I very much felt that the, being a father very, really influenced 
And it was probably at that stage that I, I really made the decision to, to transfer what I was doing or the, using the skills I had for other people's benefit, you know, the working in advertising, working in digital, helping other people take their products to market, helping other people change the world in the way that they wanted to change the world and started to think about how, how can I use these skills to do what I, or to apply them in such a way as to have an outcome that would be a good, a good influence on my son. Mm-hmm. So although I fundamentally believe everything that I say about, I want to be an inventor. I want to, I want to change the world. I want to kind of, you know, save humanity from itself. I want to make the future sustainable for all of us and future generations. There's a sense of doing it mainly for him. But then if I do it mainly for him, then maybe I influence others as a result. And as a result mm-hmm. of influencing him and my, and my, my, my other, other kids in my life, nieces, nephews, other, other people, friends, children, you just think, well, maybe you're, you're throwing a, a, a good stone in the water and creating positive ripples. You <laughs> so mentioned I the... Yeah, ask me a question and no, I, can, no. I, I can go off on tangents. <laughs> no, 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 it's very interesting your, how you answered it. The question I asked you is, who are you? And you've, you've answered that in a very detailed and interesting way. But I also ask us who or what made you you, and you've also answered that to an extent, but not just the dead. There's obviously the living, and classically we're products of, enough of our, as you mentioned, there, there's a DNA and there's the, the genetics, but there's the, the nurture element, not just the nature. So what about mm-hmm. who nurtured you or who who's influenced you significantly? To view what you're doing, the way you, you describe that as doing this for your son, not saying, but doing. Who who has influenced you to get to you, get you to that point to have actually made such a a brave and cora- a courageous decision to move out of the conventional sort of lane of work to do something that's invention based? Yeah, the obvious and the obvious answer is always your parents. Your parents are the critical influence in your life. And I'm no different in that respect. And I'm very blessed with the parents that I had. I'll, I'll say briefly, my mother is just wonderful. I'm very like my mother. She's a big character, very open, very happy to talk for as long as, as long as you will give her the time to do so. <laughs> very motivating, very positive, very optimistic. Always pushed my brother and I to go out into the world and do whatever we wanted, never put limitations on us a really positive influence and and talk to us and discuss things with us. But it's probably right to discuss my father in greater depth, given that, as you know, he died two weeks ago mm. and he died a couple of days after we were originally, before we were originally mm. due to, to record this podcast. And that has been quite a reflective period, making me think about him and mm-hmm. his life and his influence on me. And I have, I have, I've had to really kind of search my soul for my real feelings on it because my dad wasn't, my dad wasn't a great man. He wasn't what you would expect me. He wasn't a philosopher. He wasn't a business tycoon. He, he, you know, there were. He was an ordinary guy, working class guy. Grew up in post-war Newcastle in a very relative poverty and struggle when he was when he was younger. Educated to degree, but but. Not a reader, not somebody who is, who ever really embarked on an intellectual life, but mm-hmm. he was a good guy. 
He was a really good guy. And, and I keep saying this to other people because as you get older, you hear stories from other people about their parents and their fathers. And very importantly, he wasn't a bad guy. There wasn't any badness in my dad. He was a really decent source from in his, in his core. He was a good guy, was always kind to us, was never cruel to us, was always there, relatively stoic, you know, a, a reliable. And, and it's interesting because I think I, I've always had this, this thing in me, this sort of, I've got so many heroes. You know, all my bookshelves are filled with books of the, my my heroes, and I've always looked to those heroes to give me the wisdom and the kind of the 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 the, 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 the and the specific, inspiring pieces of knowledge that are going to drive me and help me learn something. And I think much of that is because my dad was just a quiet man. And when I say about that about myself, you know, I can I can talk behind legs off a donkey and I can write I can I can write and write and write and I can I can express myself very well through my words and I realized that ultimately none of that matters what I do is how I will be judged and how I'll be remembered and that's how I look at him in in this time in my life and he was a he wasn't a man of words but he was a man of action my dad provided for us his whole life and he provided for us despite the difficulties and the complexities that he went through in his in his career. And just, I, I think it's worth sort of giving you an example of what I mean by that, because I grew up with him when I was very little. My dad started life as an engineer. He worked in a in an engineering factory. He was a thing called a capstan setter. So he he set up the machine, the, the lathe machines that would that would machine specific precision parts for all kinds of things. I mean, one of the things he, he, he worked on was the London buses in, in the sixties, making some of the precision parts for the, for the engines. So he was very proud of that. And it was a solid job and it was a good job. It wasn't, it was, it was pretty skilled, but it wasn't kind of, you know, ex- extremely deeply skilled, but he loved it. And as the eighties emerged and technology took over and automation took over, he found himself redundant. So the thing that he loved, he found himself suddenly in his sort of early thirties, without any skills again and in a difficult period you know you you remember what the early 80s was like in the uk you know the 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 beginning of the thatcher years massive unemployment minor strikes especially in the northeast a very difficult time and for the rest of his life my dad never really found his niche did a series of different jobs did whatever he could to get by and a lot of really dirty jobs a lot of really shit jobs that he took to get by to put bread and on the table and and a roof over our heads and and he took me to work with him when he from being very young there were a number of jobs he did but there was a period he, he started he started a couple of his own businesses and he actually did relatively well except for the economic circumstances the the recessions of the 80s killed two businesses he started i won't go into the details about it but it really knocked him for six. It made him feel like he'd failed again. And so he lived with a lot of regret through his life of that. But he, he would, these were physical jobs and sometimes he needed help and sometimes he would take me with him. And I'm talking about from the age of like 11, 12, took my brother too. And we went and did some shit jobs with him. And there are certain things sort of seared into my memory about my old man. And one of them is we, for a while, my, my auntie worked for an estate agent and quite often the estate agents would 
if somebody had been evicted from a property or, or somebody had died and the, and the, the, the houses would require being cleared and, and everything got rid of for the, for the next tenant. And for a while, my dad did that. We went, we'd go and clear houses and, 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 mm. you know, the tragedy of, of sort of throwing people's lives in the back of a van and then taking it to escape and the, the filth and the dirt of it all. It was horrific. And I remember one time we had to do this job where we had to clear this house and this, the, the backstory was an, an old man had lived there on his own, no family, and he died and he died in the bath in his house and lay there for, for weeks. And oh. they'd come and taken the old guy away. And uh, me and my dad had to go. The dad had a crappy old van and we had to clear this house and skip everything. And when we got to this house, my dad looked in the bathroom. He'd been told that the guy died in the bath. And when we got there, as the, the, as the ambulance men had taken the body away, um, he'd sat and obviously in, in the hot water, part of his scalp was still attached to the back of the bath. So my old man just turned to me and he said, you go and start in the living room. I'll sort this out. And he closed the, closed the door. And, and that bathroom wow. was, you know, sparkling clean afterwards. That's the kind of shit he had to do mm. to, to look after us. And that's what he would do. Uh-huh. He would do what it took to make sure we were all right. Now that's, that's action. That's something I learned the hard way, how to be resilient, how to do what needed to be done to get the job done. Mm -hmm. And I think at my core, there is a, you know, we're talking about that ocean thing. There is a a conscientiousness in me that goes, doesn't matter how dirty the job I have to do in my life. It will never be that hard, never be that difficult or Mm -hmm. that awful. So, that influence he had on me was to prepare me for a life where there is nothing I won't do if I have to do it to survive, to do what I need to do. And I think that influences, that's, that's, to me, that's part of his legacy. You know, his legacy is to kind of create a resilient, independent, capable, um, adult in me. And I always, always love him for that. I mean, you said, I was right at the start of this uh, that your everything you say doesn't matter. The words you write, it'll be remembered for what you do. And you've just described your father as all about actions rather than about saying. So I think your his legacy has had an impact. Definitely, he was. I should point out he was a really funny guy as well. He joked and he, he wasn't. It wasn't as, all as bleak as I sound. But I use that as a, as a point of reference for the you know, the ability to build a a resilient individual in me. He also had great humor. He could laugh it off. He could see the absurdity of life. He was a real joker. So there's a lot more about about the man. Mm -hmm. He wasn't just a a grafter, as we say in the Northeast. (laughs) Yeah, and presumably a Newcastle United fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's a tragedy of of being from the Northeast of England. Yeah. (laughs) Well, not, not at the moment, it's not. No, 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 but, but we never, the, the team have never had money behind them in the past. What we, in the past, we never had money. We had Kevin Keegan, which will be absolutely lost on all of your American listeners. But they will indeed, the one, yeah. The one thing I'll say about Kevin Keegan as a football manager, I remember him saying this quote. I always loved this quote. He was all about creativity and flair. And he would say, I don't care if we lose seven goals as long as we score eight. And I kind of like that attitude in life. You know, you take mm-hmm. the take the good with the bad as long as it's entertaining. Yeah, Keegan's almost cut from the same cloth as Bill Shankly. 
Mm, yeah, that sort of ca- that sort of character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the glorious one of the greatest seasons in Premiership history when he lost it on television around Alex Ferguson got to him. That's right. Uh, That's the, right. Anyone that wants to be studied the psychology of competition, Alex Ferguson and Kevin Keegan's head head to heads on national television. Wow, that was yeah. something to behold. It, it's interesting. Um, you sort of need you need a nemesis sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, all great, but in, in all great stories, I mean, we, we've talked often in advertising to our clients, mm-hmm. um, every brand, you need to find the enemy mm. to create the hero uh, in yeah. every story. So back to your story, I'm going to come and talk about, who, we've talked about who you are and, and, and what made you you, and I'm going to come and talk about what you are, the actions you're saying, it's your... It's the acts you take and the things you do that you'll be remembered and the influence you'll have on your son and those around around your orbit. So we will come and talk about why you're doing what you're doing. But maybe we could just dive a bit more into understanding a bit more about some of the memories around. Because you are, I mean, we're, we're, I'm calling these series of interviews, either the storyteller interviews, the difference makers, or the domain experts. And I could say that you're a domain expert when it comes to creativity and also what you're doing with your invention you're definitely making a difference you're a difference maker by your invention but you're also a a a classic storyteller so you do sort of straddle all these categories but i'd like you to maybe reflect on your earliest memories of when you realized that you were different to maybe other kids and you were more creative and where are you if just so maybe around a recognition that you were more curious than some of the other kids around you. Yeah, it's an, it's a, it is an interesting one. I, I don't really remember much from my childhood, and I put that down to being mm-hmm. someone who is much of an observer. I, mm-hmm. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't massively interactive socially. I had a few friends. But I, wasn't, I wasn't sort of at the center of any friend group. I, was, I felt I was always on the periphery observing what everyone else was doing, and I think that was very much me gaining an understanding of the world and, and trying to kind of trying to find my place in it. Mm-hmm. And I think my, I found my place very much as a teenager because I, I, I never had this academic capability. I, I was always confused as to why I was just remembering information. I never saw any context to what I was being asked to do. And as I got into my teen years and at school in the UK, when you're about 15, you're asked to try and find some work experience. And I asked if I could do something creative. We had a design course at school and, and I quite liked the design course, but it was more tech drawing than, than any sort of pure creative design. And so they sent me, they sent me for a week's work experience in a nightclub in Newcastle called the Riverside. And I was in charge of pressing the button on, on the copy, on the copier for the photocopier for the flyers. This was their idea of okay. design. Design and, creativity. <laughs> and, and, and this will give you a good idea of my mother. My mother was kind of furious at this because she felt it wasn't kind of, wasn't good enough. And wasn't, uh, it wasn't a reflection of what I meant by I want to do something in design. So she marched me up to the school. She knocked on the, on the window of the, the receptionist and, and said, I'm, you know, I'm not happy about this. Somebody, somebody needs to do something. And the receptionist, she's a fearsome woman, my mother, 
And the receptionist clearly was sort of like, oh my God, I need to do something about this. And so the receptionist, I think either had a friend, it was either her friend's husband or her husband worked in a little advertising agency in Newcastle called Colbert Advertising. It was one of those network advertising groups that did all of the, the advertising for the local car dealership that was, you know, ubiquitous in each city around the country and things like that. And I ended up going for this work experience week. I was put in the team, in the studio team, and led by a guy called Eric Hall. And Eric Hall was a huge influence in my life. So suddenly I was sat in this advertising agency and, and given a brief to do an advert for Anglian Windows. I remember it very specifically. I was given trays of letter set layout pads, and I was told to write an advert that explained the fact that Anglian Windows saved you money because they were well insulated. Like my first brief, and I, and I was saying to, I said, Eric, so what do I do? How do I solve this? What are the rules? It's like, well, just, just come up with some ideas and see, see how you, how you do it, how you express it. And I was like, okay, so how do I come up with ideas? Well, just think about this, think about the problem, think, think about what the solution is probably, how can you express that in a simple way? And he took the time and he, he really kind of talked to me and, and helped me. And I remember doing this, playing with Letraset and having this little, taking all the different sized pound signs and, mm. and having them sort of fly out of an open window as if you were losing money because the window was open and not insulated. And I just played with this idea and he, he said, great. Yeah, really great. And, I, and for the first time, I suddenly got this sense that something unique that could come from mm. me that had no definition as an academic system or process could have value and, and actually could solve a problem that somebody else had. And all of this stuff started connecting. And I was like, oh my God, this is me. This is what I want to do. This is a thing. This is, this is not, you know, going and getting a job as an apprentice plasterer from a dad's pal, Bob. You know, this is something genuinely that I can, I, I can enjoy. And I, mm-hmm. I was willing to work. I was always willing to work at whatever I found but it was finding something worth working at. So did that work experience, asked after a week of doing this, if I could go back in summer and just be there. And Eric said, yeah, come back and spend, you know, three or four weeks in summer and you can just sit in the studio and work with the guys and watch what we do. And, and he was amazing. And, and at the end of summer, I got very close to him. He, he really was, was one of those first mentors in your life, which you really need in life. You need to find somebody to, to, to be that positive influence to be what Joseph Campbell calls the second father. Your father builds you up to be an independent person, but can only take you to, to that point where you have to find yourself. And you find yourself in something other than what you came from. So you see mm. something you see something that references what you could be, not what you are. And then that influence, it's the Obi-Wan character, it's all of that kind of stuff in mythology. But that second father figure, Eric, suddenly became like that. It's like, right, this guy has a life and a career and a character, and I can emulate that, and I can work to be something of that nature. And he, and, and literally within weeks of me finishing that work experience, he, he emigrated to Australia. So he, he had the classic, a classic drawing board, a draftsman's drawing board with a, you'll know, the poised angle lamp. And, and oh, he, yeah. uh-huh. he, he couldn't take this to Australia with him. It was obviously, there was a certain amount of shipping. So he asked me if I wanted it. And I said, of course I do. So my dad and I collected that, brought that back. It sat in my bedroom. And 
I always felt that was a, it was like a symbolic thing that he gave me. I had to use this now. I had to use this lamp to, to project onto what I was designing on this, this beautiful old angle poised drawing board. And so that saw me through university. And then because of that, I, I, I found the, the course in advertising I wanted to do and just pursued it relentlessly. So I was very lucky that I, I found an opportunity and I found a person to inspire me and educate me and, and show me a pathway in life that was absolutely suited to me. So a little bit of serendipity goes a long way in life. I will say, though, my, my, my mom... And also your mother. My mom, my mom was a, a huge influence. But she does, she does remind me that when I was about, I was about 11 or 12, I had a, an English assignment, and it was to write a story in a, in a unique way, in a different way than just a normal story. And I constructed a story... It was just a, it was a short story, but it was on one page. And the story I've constructed was made up of the strap lines from all of the TV ads that were currently on television at the time. So obviously the advertising thing was a subliminal. Subliminally, it influenced me. And I was very influenced by, I remember being at school and seeing one of those first Nike posters in the gym hall. And just, you know, that, just do it. And it was, yeah. the, it was the, the, the classic American footballer who, you know, hand against the wall, just worked his ass off, just one, and it was in, inspirational. So there were, there were other influences in there. But. Mm. Okay, so that, that's, yeah, so that's really interesting. It's, you mentioned the ocean as the personality sort of characteristics. Whatever, however subliminal these things that led you to desire have some inkling that design was where you wanted to go. And as you say, serendipity kicked in. But often, as I like to say, I think we engineer serendipity or people around us engineer serendipity. And I think your mother's persistence and grit and determination to see you outside of a, not in a nightclub, mm-hmm. uh, but somewhere more creative, was engineering serendipity. But also, it is about being prepared to go down the road less traveled. And sometimes it takes an element of fearlessness and a confidence in yourself. Now, when you were a kid, were you a rebel at school? Did you fit in, or did you want to go down your own path? I was, I was, I was a good boy. <laughs> I don't think I, I wouldn't say I was rebellious at all. Uh, I did play. I remember we, my my best friend and I, we just didn't have any interest in it at all. We'd play truant a lot, and we'd spend a lot of time just running out of the back gates of the school jumping on the bus and going to the local mall, which I'm sure is probably, that's probably universal in America as well as the UK. So, but, but that was it. I mean, I, was, I wasn't naughty. I wasn't challenging. I was, I was, I was a relatively nice kid. I mean, there, there is something rebellious in me. There is something that's, but it's not a rebel. It's not that sort of rebelliousness for the sake of rebelling. There's something in me that is curious about whether or not I can simplify or do something a different way and potentially a better way. A bit of a, yeah. Uh-huh. So a, there is a not there is a nonconformist element in you. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. If I'm told if I'm told this is the way we do things, I like to question that before I make a decision uh-huh. in saying that that's okay. That's the way I'm going to do it as well. You mentioned early on the influence of the films and the superheroes in that you know Superman, and you mentioned Joseph Campbell. And I was going to ask you about aside from your creativity, which most people that know you would describe you as a, a very creatively driven being. What would you say your natural superpowers are? 
other people might say talents or gifts, but yeah, I always think it's hard to understand yourself against other people because your lived experiences of your own feelings and your your own understanding of the world, and you, you can never truly understand how somebody else is experiencing that. But I do think I'm empathetic. I do think I can put myself in other people's shoes more so perhaps than some people can. So that maybe gives me some sort of capacity to understand what you might need from a situation or a product or a service mm. or an invention and and sort of experience life from the from the viewpoint of somebody utilizing or coming into contact with the thing that I do or put into the world. And therefore mm. I have a, probably a good sense of evaluation of whether there is value itself in that thing that I put into the world. So there's, I think, I think empathy is, is a, I mean, I think it's a great quality in people. I actually know people who do not have empathy and I think it's a, it's a, it's a tragedy in people's life if they don't have it. Yeah, I agree. It's a great card set. I keep by my computer. There's an agency in New York called Sub Rosa, founded by a guy called Michael Ventura. And I interviewed him, one of the first guests, and he, he wrote a book called um, Applied Empathy. And he's got this little card set called Questions and Empathy, Provocation for Applied Empathy. I, I remember it's really you, good. If you I listened to the podcast. Really, I remember you telling me about him. He's, he seemed really cool. Lovely guy. Yeah, real a real star. So I, I agree with you, and I think it is a quality that all great creative people that I've worked with tend to tend to have but you did say that it's hard to describe well, maybe how other people perceive you but I will ask you that in terms of in relation to what do people compliment you for because I think that's then reflects what they think of you well again I come back to this the stuff of my father people do people do and are aware that I am conscientious that I work hard and I think as a as, as a creative I don't really like the word creative, but as a creative person, that often can be perceived as, okay, they're creative. They're, you know, they, they like to do things on their time, when they're ready, when they want to, and they're a little bit difficult and not always dependable. But I think that was, that was the thing that got me through those early years. If I, if I have been relatively successful in that world, it's, because, it's not because of raw talent, it's because I worked at it. I was always first one in, always last one out. I would work long hours and enjoyed the work as well. So that, that, that made it easier. But I think that conscientiousness and being dependable as a result of that always made me very popular in, in the agencies I worked in, certainly in the creative departments. If, if a client service person took a brief to the traffic manager, they would ask if I was free to work on it. And not Alex. <laughs> Your partner. Well, you Alex. describe yourself, and I think about Alex. So you, you can be sort of chalk and cheese. Yeah, yeah, that, that did work very well. And Alex, Alex, bless him, is one of the most cre- truly, creative is the wrong word, Alex is artistic. Alex is incredible yeah. at pure expression, pure abstraction, and actually now lives as an artist musician in Amsterdam, where he should have been all along rather than in the commercial world because it, it uh, Alex, Alex clashed with the idea of having to, having to corrupt ideas for commercial gain. And I appreciate that with him. It's, it's who, who he was, but the, the ability for us to bounce ideas off each other was, it was always, it was a, a wonderful time in, in my life working with, with Alex Payton. 
and his art, Alex's art is, it's it's unbelievably good. Now he is he is. I don't know if you have seen the his his paintings recently. No, he start, he probably took up painting. He's always done a bit of painting, but he took it up really professionally about ten years ago. And his his personal painting style it's Picasso esque. It's it's utterly phenomenal. He he lives a relatively modest life in Amsterdam, but I would like someone like Charles Sachi to see Alex's work and really see the the, the quality of it now because. I, I genuinely think he could be one of the could be one of the world's most famous artists over the course of the next decade. He's he's that good. I'll check in it my out. opinion. Put a link put a link to it in the show notes mm-hmm. so people can see it. I mean, you've talked about the nature and the characteristics of being a creative, and you're now working pretty much focused on being an inventor with a desire to bring this product to life that you can come and talk about. Yeah, but like all creative people, inventors, innovators, whether it's an empty pad of paper or whether it's a problem that he's solving, you're entering into the unknown and you must have to confront fragility and doubt that often goes with the territory that you, your domain. How do you deal with that? I ask experts. The simple answer to your question yeah. is I ask experts because I am a bit of a polymath. I know, I know a lot about a lot, but not everything. So, uh-huh. so to give you a good example of where that comes in handy, and again, it, it's all connected, all of this stuff, the, the confidence that I've developed, that extroversion that I've developed through having to be extrovert because I've had to learn to present, I've had to learn to kind of ex- to sell my ideas. When I started inventing, so perhaps it's worth explaining what my invention is at this point. Yeah, I think the time is now to say, let's talk about your invention. So I've been an asthmatic my whole life. I've carried what's called a PMDI, a a pressurized multi-dose inhaler. People will be very familiar with those. Yeah, exactly. Seen them in films. The vast majority of of people with asthma will carry them regularly and have done most of their lives. It's, It's a wonderful piece of technology, but it's also, it comes with a certain amount of issues. One being convenience, they're relatively big and bulky and, and you usually only get one. So you have to remember it. You can't forget that mm. inhaler. And also there's a stigma attached to taking medical devices. The kids with asthma always get sort of, you know, there's a, there's a stigma. They feel it. Even, even if it's not mentioned, you feel it. So I always wanted as an asthmatic to have something more discreet, more simple, more convenient that I could carry around with me easily. And that sort of came to a head about I think it was about eight nine years ago now, and I was in my full Scottish kilt suit at an award ceremony, and I only had the sporran, which is the little pocket in the front of the kilt, and my inhaler wouldn't fit into it. So I went to this award ceremony without my inhaler. I left it in the hotel room, and that whole night I had that paranoia that you have as an asthmatic when you don't have your inhaler. I better not dance in case I get wheezy. Yeah. And I thought, right, I need to do something about this. So anyway, I'd had some thoughts about, there was a new generation of inhalers that weren't pressurized wet mists that were milled as dry powders, very fine, small amounts of dry powders. And any of your listeners who who are asthmatic will probably have moved on to the new generation of dry powder inhalers. They're still bulky. They're still not as convenient to carry, and they still have the stigma attached. So I decided to design my own single-dose device. And because I saw this fine dry powder, I had this idea in relation to filters, where I thought, if you have a filter material, a mask, for instance, and you breathe in, 
it captures the particles on the filter material. And I mm-hmm. thought, if I preloaded the filter material with that powder, and then somebody inhaled from the other side, you could lift the particles off the powder and into the airway. And I thought, okay, that's an interesting mm-hmm. concept. And then I started playing with sort of with business cards and the flexibility of business cards and taking two business cards together and squeezing them and forming this tunnel in between. I thought if I put a piece of filter material between that tunnel, could I load it and then close it and have this flat business card that then if you took it with you and you had an asthma attack, you squeeze it, it opens, you inhale, it lifts the powder off, and then it goes into your lungs and then you dispose it. All of these things started playing around in my head and and I, I designed it, I drew it all up, I kind of made a little animation of the concept and the idea. And then, and then I thought, I know nothing about this world. I know nothing about pharmacology. I know nothing about milling of dry powder drugs. Mm. I know nothing about respiratory physics. I know nothing about the biology of the, the, the trachea and the, and the lower and deeper lung. Um, I know nothing about the production of medical devices. <laughs> there was so little that I knew, but I thought, I've got a good idea. So I sort of went online, scoured the the internet looking for where do respiratory inhaler experts converge. And I found I found two things. I, I found that there were a couple of really important conferences that they all went to. And I found out that there were a few key people in that industry who were very respected as inhaler designers. One guy called David Harris, who was an inhaler designer specifically, and another guy called Hartwig Steckel. Who, one of the, the puff ones. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes, but also had designed a multitude of different devices as well. So a real expert in device design. And then another another guy, really cool guy called Hartwig Steckel. And Hartwig was one of the leading experts on the development of dry powder drugs and had written lots of scientific papers. So I, I pinpointed these two people. I went to a, a respiratory conference in Istanbul and targeted Hartwig and kind of went up to him and I, I said, hi, you don't know me, but I've come up with this idea and I really need to understand whether or not there is any viability in it. And I need to ask mm-hmm. somebody like you to know that. Talked to him, showed him, the, showed him the concept, waiting for him to say, you're having a laugh, right? This is ridiculous. You're a joke. What do you know about this? But actually mm-hmm. that didn't happen. He said, yeah. Yeah, there's there's some logic and some sense in your concept, and your and there are a few things you'd have to do: morphology of the powders and making sure that they were kind of viable to sit into a membrane in the matrix. And so he got thinking about it, and he was very encouraging and very positive and very helpful. And then I went to meet this other guy, David Harris, who's a great guy, who's become a sort of a, a friend and a mentor of mine in in Cambridge because he worked in the life sciences industry in Cambridge. And I showed him the device again, waiting for waiting for a look sunshine, you know you don't know a thing about respiratory physics. This is why this won't work. Mm-hmm. And David saw, David went, mm, okay, this, this, yeah, there's some merit in this. This is worth pursuing. So given that I had these two sides of wow. the industry, the kind uh-huh. of the, 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 the actual device itself and the, the pharmacology, I then went to, uh, and, and again, serendipity turns out that the biggest respiratory conference in the world has its yearly, event in edinburgh where i live mm-hmm. so in every this, year every year the entire respiratory industry comes to edinburgh for a, for a conference wow. called ddl drug delivery to the lungs mm. so <laughs> like okay this is such so the universe is telling me that this is worth pursuing so i went to ddl and again did some you know i've become good at networking become smart at understanding 
people and empathizing with, with people and seeing where the kind of the, the, the key people in any industry are. So I found an amazing lady called Helen Muirhead and Helen is, Helen used to work at GSK and Helen is one of the few people in the world who has taken two of the biggest multi-billion dollar respiratory inhalers to market in her time at GSK. And serendipitously, she and her husband, Gordon Muirhead, who was also one of the vice presidents of new drugs at uh, GSK, had just left and started their own consultancy. And I sort of pleaded with them to help me. And they said they liked me. I think they liked me and they kind of sort of liked my idea. And so at that point, everything started to converge. Lisa, my business partner, came on board with me. Lisa's phenomenal. Lisa is like the, the commercial the commercial brain to my creative brain. And we have a, a, a my magical partnership. She's, she's, she's incredible. And with Helen and Gordon behind us, working with us as consulting team, we spent the last four or five years developing this inhaler to the point at which we now have sort of a working, a working mechanism. And we're just moving to the stage now where we're going to take it to a, a fully working commercial prototype. And no one is more surprised than me, than the, that this thing that was just a, a thought in my head is now a physical entity with a multitude of people, a multitude of companies working on it and, and helping with it and whose lives have been influenced by it. And we are still, we are still a way away from it being in market because it takes about 11 years standard to get a, a, a medical device to market. But we are only a couple of years away from that, probably now two or three years away, and we're making great progress. And the main thing is the device is working. We found a way to, to create that, what we call a dispersion engine for the dry powder drugs through using filtration. And it's still the way that you imagined it? No, it's, the... it's, it's so much better. Have I shown you it? No. No. I, I can show you it. And it, obviously to anyone listening, it won't make a great deal of sense. Yeah. But as you can, that's it there. You can see it's a flat business card size, uh -huh. credit card size, and it's in foil pouch the way you would when you used to get uh, collector's cards as kids and they came in mm -hmm. a foil pouch yeah. it's kind of like the size of that so i just peel the peel it out of its foil pouch that's the uh -huh. device flat and all i do is squeeze it and it pops into the shape a little sort of shape of a oh, wow um it's kind of it's what we call it a trumpet it's sort of a trumpet shape yeah um and the front this is just a this is just a simple demonstrator uh -huh. at the minute it's not a fully fully functioning thing but you can see there's a tiny hole Yes. And that hole has a has a membrane, and in the matrix of that membrane is stored the dry powder drug. So all I do to take my drugs is just inhale. The air goes through the back, over the membrane. There's a pressure created at the back. It over the membrane lifts the drug, and it naturally flows into my lungs through the through the actual device. Wow! And one of the beauties of, of the mouthpiece as well, because of that sort of clever origami in building it, is it's it's around the same sort of shape and dimension yeah. as, as my PMDI. So there's a familiarity to the end user. So it's, it's, it's very real. And, and most importantly, it fits in a kilt. It fits in my kilt. <laughs> in a spawn. <laughs> so the market, that's probably one of the limit, one of the smaller markets, but an, a, a critical market for me. Oh, yeah. um, wow. So Incredible. We've, so we've come quite a long way with that. And, and again, I, I keep coming back to my dad. Hard work. Like mm -hmm. the idea bit, that was the easy thing. Trying to get, mm -hmm. I've, I've had jobs where I've, I spent about a year and a half scouring the world for membrane materials that would be viable to hold powders at a certain, mm -hmm. 
a certain size, tried and failed, tried and failed, tried and failed relentlessly until we got to the point where we found something that actually kind of worked. So all of that hard work, um, this is this is the interesting thing that I think is um, like when I define myself now and I go, well, well who are you? Mm-hmm. I was I was never an execution guy. I used to like doing the ideas because the ideas are fun. You sit at your desk, come up with the ideas, play around with that. But execution, it's Elon Musk always says this. It's sort of, you know, the, the hard work is in the manufacturing, trying to manufacture a product in the real world, not a digital product. Digital products are relatively straightforward. In the real world, trying to make something, trying to find materials that are medical grade and and recyclable, trying to find at, at, at microscopic levels materials that can interact with each other in the correct way that aren't influenced by things like electrostatics or and 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 materials that are hydrophilic not hydrophobic making something simple is one of the hardest things you can you can ever do and it takes that kind of commitment and that conscientiousness that to, to just relentlessly keep going with it and I said, so that so that's so, in short that's what i've been doing since i since i became an inventor you posted i think something on linkedin about I think it was the George Bernard Shaw quote mm-hmm. about the unreasonable man, where Bernard Shaw said, the unreasonable man adapts himself to the world. Oh, sorry, the reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable man persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Mm-hmm. I think this is clearly an example of you being unreasonable. And in terms of you, going back to your description about who you are, you use that ocean personality where it's Mm -hmm. about agreeableness but Mm -hmm. you've got a little bit of your mother i think in you where (laughs) you're going i'm not i'm not accepting the status quo i'm going to disrupt i'm going to be disagreeable yeah and that takes that's 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 also persistence it's also self-belief and and courage to do that how have you i mean many people would have given up to get way before getting to this stage what's kept you going well, again, it's that it's, it's my old man, isn't it? You don't give up. Mm-hmm. You've got a job to do. Get it done. That's it's almost as simple as that. I don't give up because I've been trained not to give up, mm-hmm. and and yeah. and that's that's the simple reason. And and also, I, I I don't want to, and I don't think I I don't think I have to, because what I've learned throughout my life is that there are very few problems that are unresolvable, and that. The, the the superpower thing is that you can think your way out of a problem. Where human as, as human beings, our brain functions to resolve problems and find answers to, yeah. to questions. I mean, to go back to to Bernard Shaw, he did also say that imagination is the sort of the a critical component to sort of invention mm-hmm. and and cre- the creative process. So I suppose it is all wrapped up there with your curiosity as well. And all those all those characteristics. Yeah, um, I think I think it is. The, the other thing about that word unreasonable though is that it's it sounds like it sounds like it doesn't make you someone who you'd want to be around. Mm, an unreasonable yeah. person. But I think there's a way to be unreasonable and also be inclusive, collaborative, mm. approachable, and fun. Uh, it, it's, Empath- empathetically unreasonable. Empathetically, there's a, there's a whole. That's a, that's a psychological trait. That's a character type. Um, There's a book to be written on that. I think. Um, yeah. 
also in terms of i i mean you've persisted you're getting close and you say it's it's a journey to getting a, a product a medical product to market i like talking about failures more than success because i don't really know where success begins and ends really have there been any sort of successful failures on this journey yeah yes because well i i sort of go back to i always look back like the old Kipling poem, if where he says, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. The, mm. the point of all of this is, is my intent and the action I'm taking based on my intent. This, mm. this may fail. This may never go to market. This, something might happen. Somebody might, somebody might come and say, oh, no, I had this idea ages ago. And uh, ultimately, I sort of don't think about it. And, and the reason I don't think about it it's because I believe in this, this concept of emergence. And uh-huh. the concept of emergence is related to sort of systems theory in, in biology. Again, I've, I've read some weird stuff in my life, but there's a guy called Ludwig von Bertelenfei, and he was one of the, the sort of the godfather's biological systems theory from the turn of the century. And he, he created this concept called emergence. And the best way to explain emergence is that if I showed you, if you didn't know anything, if you had no knowledge and I showed you an ant and I said to you, what is that ant capable of? The last thing you would, you would say is an anthill. So, yeah. so it's only by the emergent properties of ants that anthills come about. So, and, and the, tr- the truth, that is the truth of all things that emerge in life. I mean, and, and I come back to what you asked about, who, who am I? I am an emergent system. I am something that has come about as a result of all the variables that could have happened over the course of my life to be who I am now. And there are multiple other me's that I could have been as a result of those variables. So I am an emergent property. This inhaler is an emergent property. The concept is an emergent property of what happened in my brain, but the actual product is an emergent property of the people who've worked on it the serendipitous luck I've had in finding the correct materials, the individual influence that other people have had from a design perspective, from a pharmacology perspective, from a physics perspective. So it is emerging. It's not going to succeed or fail. It's going to continue to emerge. And even when it's in market, it will have emerged into market because of other factors that I still don't have any control over. So I'm very aware now in my life that fear of failure is not something I need to have, not because it might fail, but because failure isn't really a thing. It's just, it's just there are situations that will emerge, and some of those situations will be good and some will be bad, but there will always be something else to move on to from those situations. So, And I think this is probably something that's quite critical for anybody the inventor, innovator, entrepreneur to realize is that you, there is no end. There is no end game. There is just the journey. And if you start the journey and you have the right intent at the outset of the journey and you, you can control certain things. For instance, if you go out and get and, and, and work with people who are not experts in their field, chances are the thing that you're trying to make emerge won't emerge at its best. If you're not open to adaptation, chances are things won't emerge. There are certain ways in which you can act to give the best possible chance to whatever it is you're trying to achieve to to succeed. But the idea that you have complete control over that 
is mm-hmm. illusory. Yeah, it's a it's very interesting that you you describe that because I think a lot of things. I I was on a call the other day with a, a upcoming guest, and we were talking about the binary nature of life. You know, often you know belief, non belief. You know, success, failure, as if they're but they're they're opposites. Mm-hmm. Um, yet emergence is much more of a fluid system. Yeah, and if we start, to, if we were, I was going to talk to you about what we have to do to change the mindset of a generation of kids that are going to be growing up in an age of AI and how we start to make them think more creatively. And I think when you talk about emergence, it feels like it's a rich territory that should be, it should be core to the education of children to think not in terms of, oh, you've got to pass or you're going to fail. You've got to succeed or you've got to fail. And that there's this, but it's much more, you're, as you said, you're, you're on a journey mm-hmm. and you've got to start to see events as opportunities, yeah. as learning. And I think that's really interesting, particularly, and we talked before we got started the podcast about AI. Mm-hmm. You've got a, a, a son, yeah. you're, as you said, you're guiding him. What, I mean, I mean, I'm not asking any specific there, but have you got any reflections on what we have to do based on your learnings on this mm-hmm. journey about mm-hmm. how we should be thinking about education? Absolutely. And the AI. It's, yeah, I, I, I have, and I've thought about it. I've thought about it a lot, and I've thought about how how I make sure I'm a positive influence on him and I don't sort of, I don't end up being dismissive of the existing systems because, mm-hmm. as I'm aware, something will emerge out of the way things are. And there isn't, we don't really have full control over it. People will have ideas and people have had ideas about a better education system. But actually the reality is that there's a generation going through it at the moment who are looking at it and going, I was talking to my son about this the other day, the chat GPT system. Chat GPT, yeah. Yeah. It passed, it passed an MBA at one of the, one of the better universities. And so it's like, well, okay, why, why do humans need to pass them if the, if the, uh, the AI can do it? Mm. But the thing that I've, I've tried to, I've tried to help him understand, and he'll probably listen to this. So it's, it's, it's worth reiterate. There are two things I think are very important for him to learn. And that is psychology and philosophy, because psychology will tell him about the operating system within himself. And philosophy will help him work out what to do with it. <laughs> so I talk to him a lot about the way the brain works, about the way different people have different personalities and why they have different personalities. And I try to influence him the best I can on where to look for different philosophies on life so that he, he, he doesn't have any preset idea of what he should be thinking, but he, he, he takes all these other influences and then goes, okay, from that I can... I can get some kind of sense of who I might be as an individual and therefore what my purpose in life is and therefore find my, my pathway and my, my, you know, Campbell again, follow, follow my bliss as a result of that. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to help him do that. But at the same time, there is another lesson which is critical to the school and and what he's going through at the moment. Because he actually strangely sat his, his first mock exam for philosophy today. So 
the thing that I try to explain is that the, the outcome of the exams is not important. The, the A's, the B's, the, the, the nature of the, what is important that he's been given the opportunity to test his commitment mm-hmm. and his ability to be conscientious. Because if he proves to himself that he can work hard on something that he doesn't really want to do, imagine how successful he'll be when he works hard at something that he does want to do. So the lesson I'm trying to get across to him is that if he builds that discipline in himself at this stage in his life, and it's true of all kids, build that discipline as early as you can, and it will serve you well, because that's the discipline my old man built in me. We have, to, to say, yeah. we have to get up, we have to go to work, because if we don't, you know, we don't eat tonight, or I can't pay the rent. So it's those core underlying things that are critical in terms of a, a child's education. So I try to be the best influence I can with him on that, but then it's, I'm also me. So I, <laughs> I also kind of like, he'll say, what's the point of this? And I'll go, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Uh, so I'm a difficult father. You wrote a lovely piece when you were turned 50, uh, your, 50 your 50 lessons since mm-hmm. turning 50. Um, I'm going to ask you, since turning 50, what have you learned? That's a difficult one because that was that was six months ago, and I've spent the last six months with the with the imminence of of death surrounding my father, and being there to care for him during that period. You know the importance of the importance of family, the import the importance of realizing that life gives you what you need. You don't always realize that until later, but mm-hmm. I've often you know I've often probably. I think I feel it doesn't make me a, a, a good son in many ways. But over the over the years, I've thought dad would be better if he was like that. Dad would be better if he was like that. And oh, I wish I had a dad like somebody else. And the reality mm-hmm. is, I had exactly the dad that was right for me. And mm-hmm. so that is a, that has been a a really critical lesson in life. And I, and I also hope that that lesson is that, that other people sort of learn that in life as well. I'm sure I'm sure you're the same. You you go am I Am I a good dad? Am I a good partner? Am I, you know, am I doing the right thing for the people I care about? And it's it's for them to work that out later on. You mentioned earlier on, talking to the dead, that Epictetus quote. Uh, I think there are two people. I think may be dead people that may have been influential on your life. Given that you've talked about the importance of psychology and philosophy, but also your design is at your core of your being. Mm-hmm. If you could have had dinner with Milton Glaser, a great designer, and or and or Alan Watts, great philosopher, what would you have asked them in terms of speaking to the dead? What would you want to discuss or ask? Do you know? I think that there's probably a thousand and one sort of deep, deep philosophical questions to ask both. But I would want to know what they found funny. Because I think the critical thing to understanding a person is to seeing what level of sophistication their sense of humor is at. Because humor tells you everything. Humor, humor is our coping mechanism in life for the complex suffering of existence. So I would want to just sit and laugh with them. I'd want to see what absurdities they had experienced what funny situations they'd been in. Because that would tell you so much about the, the, the human being because both of those people, Alan, I, I love Alan Watts. The greatest thing I've ever, the greatest truth I've ever heard anybody speak is from Alan Watts when he said, you are the universe experiencing itself. 
Mm-hmm. That's utterly profound. And then, and then Milton Glaser is just on a, on a, on a, as on a design front is as pure and kind of authentic and a, a, an aesthetic artist as, as, as ever there has been. And, and as you know, I very luckily met him in New York many years ago and managed to kind of interview him for a, one of the industry magazines in the UK. And he was just inspiring. He was like, like a, like a Jedi master. I was, I was overwhelmed by kind of my own incompetence in comparison as, 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 <laughs> as I spoke to him. But yeah, I, I'd love to sit down with people like that. Maybe the, maybe the three of them, maybe add Kevin Keegan into the mix. <laughs> well, it might be interesting. It might be a little, I'll, I'll challenge you to go away and go to chat GPT and ask a chat GPT to get Alan Watts to tell you a joke. Great idea. And see, see what, it, see what it turns out. It'll oh. be the real test of it. Oh, that's going to send me down a rabbit hole this evening, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it is. I'm going to be doing it as well. So we'll have to follow up on that one by, uh, by chat. Anyway, I know it's getting late there for you. I'm going to just ask you a few more questions. Okay. Um, there is one other person actually talking about talking to the dead someone that we both encountered, Charlie Robertson, who sadly passed too early in mm-hmm. his life mm-hmm. a few years back. And one of the great advertising planners and thinkers um, that the industry has ever created and, and Scotland. What was his impact on you when you crossed paths? Well, well, he impacted me a number of times over the course of my life. I think he was a... I wouldn't say Charlie and I were were very close, but sometimes you have somebody who you can turn to in specific times when you need them and they're there for you. And Charlie was sort of that for, that for me. I first met him when I, when I was a, a young creative at the Leap Agency, I think at the same time you were there. And uh-huh. the thing I remember most about him at the time was that we were trying to do some really radical work, very, very challenging in, in the, in the, you know, youth ad- youth advertising, soft drink advertising. We were trying to break some new boundaries and, and and change the sort of parameters of what was acceptable within that. And there were an awful lot of people around that who were very nervous and very anxious and very cautious, who were trying to, I guess, put the brakes a little bit on what we were trying to achieve. And Charlie was sort of sitting back with his arms folded, very relaxed, going, "Keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing at the edges." So Charlie sitting with that confidence as the senior man in the room allowed everybody else to look at him from the agency and everybody and the client side. And they saw Charlie's confidence and his lack of his fearlessness around that. And that gave everybody the freedom and the confidence to, to actually do something relatively radical. So I always remember that. I, it wasn't what he said. It was, it was his, his, his character in that respect that was, that was critical. But many years later, there was a few occasions, but, but there was one occasion where I, I made, a, I made a, a crazy mistake in a client meeting. Just as I transferred from advertising to digital, I said mm-hmm. something on a conference call, which was I misjudged who I was talking to and what we were talking about because other people had, had influenced me in such a way that I was, I was sort of ready for a fight that wasn't, wasn't a fight. And it was, it was one of those mm-hmm. weird situations you find yourself in. I said something. And somebody took offense on the client side and I thought, oh my God, that's it. I've literally just lost the biggest account for this agency. 
by saying something I shouldn't have, have said because I, I was misinformed about something. And I was, I was so, I was so worried. I thought I'm going to be, I did not long join the company and I thought, oh, this is going to be my first big sort of, yeah, he's sacked. And I thought, what do I do? All right, I call Charlie. So I said to Charlie, oh my God, here's what happened, Charlie. What do I do? And he said, okay, first thing, did you mean to mess up? I was like, no. He said, did you have the right intentions when you went into the, the conversation? I said, yeah. He said, well, don't apologize. He said, only apologize when you've actually done something that you, that you intended to upset. He said, otherwise, shut up, get on with it, forget about it. I was like, okay. And, and I did. And turns out everybody else did because I think they'd had the same reason, realizing, realization yeah. that oh, it was just a mistake. So that, that, that sort of lesson, never apologize for something that wasn't malicious. Mm-hmm. And have a sort of belief in your convictions when your intentions are right was, was important. But also when I quit, when I quit everything to become an inventor, started, you know, consulting and starting the inhaler business and, and becoming an inventor. I talked him through the strategy. I talked him through what I was going to do, how I was going to do it, my process, everything. In the same way he did in that first instance, he just sat back and he listened and he just said, go and do it. He never criticized anything. He never said, no, don't do that. Bit of that, a little bit more of that, a little bit less of that. He just said, go and do it. And mm-hmm. it was, it was, he knew what I needed when I needed it. So he was a, a, a great, great guy. Great mentor. You're continuing to invent. You're not, you're not <laughs> satisfied with one hailer. You've also got an idea yeah. around environment, sustainability, power, uh, using kelp. Could you, without going too far, maybe if you, don't, if you want to share it without okay. giving anything too much away? No, 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 that's absolutely fine. Yeah, I, I have this. Yeah, I have an abundance of conscientiousness. That's my problem. So the second invention, and this is much earlier stage than the, the inhaler, it's called kelp systems. So it is a, kelp stands for, it's an acronym, it stands for kinetic energy leverage power. So it is a hydrokinetic energy generation system. It's a sequence of submarine impellers that are designed to harness the natural kinetic energy in moving water. And it began life as a concept for, t- as, as a tidal energy turbine, effectively to sit within the kind of the, the strong currents that we, we see moving around the ocean. But laterally, we've, we've pivoted more to run of river hydro energy because the nature of the system itself, it's, it's based on biomimicry of kelp um, because kelp, mm. rather than resisting the movement of water, absorbs the energy in the water. And so it, it's not, it's not like a, a, a kelp, it really is nothing mm-hmm. like that. It's more the, the, the fluid nature of the ability for, for the, the system to absorb water. So we've just, I started this a couple of years ago. I had a quiet winter. And so I kind of just did the work. Similar, similar process, didn't know what I was doing. Had this core idea, which was in contrast to what the existing systems were. Took it to some engineers that I knew, got some validation. But we've just finished with the Scottish Enterprise, which is the economic grant funding body in Scotland gave us some money last year to do a, a feasibility study evaluation on the technology. And it's, it's looking really, really good. So we've just finished that. And the next step later this year will be to start 
fundraising around that because trying to get a prototype energy turbine system into the water is is not going to be cheap. But we've got some provenance that it's going to be very, very sustainable, very low carbon footprint, very good energy efficiency, and will help to provide energy around the world in, in both remote locations for to attach to microgrids, but also in larger larger cities and towns which have rivers running through them and, and a multitude of other applications. So that's really exciting. And again, it's part of that that invention philosophy that I have that which comes from good old Buckminster Fuller, who said we have mm, we have yeah. four four things we have to get right for the sustainability of humanity. Health, environment, energy and interstellar space travel. So I'm I'm playing with I'm doing well with help with health and I'm working on the energy crisis. And uh, if I, if I do find any more time in the future, I'll I'll try and try and resolve the the environment issue and then get everyone to space. Although my 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 old hero yeah. Elon Musk is doing very well with that on his own. He is indeed. I mean, that's just great inspiration for any person that's maybe working advertising. I know a lot of people are feeling that their creativity is blunted by the nature of the industry today. Mm-hmm. So I think your words, if they're heard by enough people, should be impetus for people to go out there and believe in their own ideas and start inventing. I hope so. Um, what I mean, if, aside from that, what serendipitous impact would you like this podcast interview to have? I really love the idea that I can kind of, I can inspire people. I don't want I, my ego doesn't need that. Anymore. I'm old enough to get over the ego stuff. I hope I hope that people who are in creative industries who are using their skills to take products to market effectively and get paid to take products to market, can realize that they can develop, use the same skills to develop their own products and services. And through that conscientiousness and actually asking for expert help, they can actually get their own products and markets, products and services to market themselves and start to benefit in a way that isn't just a day's pay for a day's work, and I'm not massively commercially focused with what I do, but I do think that there is a I'm I'm a capitalist in as much as the more capital you can create, the more you can reinvest that in in making things better. So it's very hard to do that as a creative in a design agency, an ad agency, in house in a client business. You're never really gonna you're gonna be living relatively hand to mouth. But if you design and develop your own products and services. You can create capital from that, and you can use that capital to actually improve more and more. And I've always felt that creative people never really kind of get that that training, that help. This The vast majority of creative people are relatively risk-averse. That means they like being creative, but they also want to make sure the bills are paid and they want to make sure that they're comfortable in an environment where they can be creative. So mm-hmm. I think people need to realize you can push yourself out of that comfort zone and actually kind of do for yourself what you're doing for other people. I mean, I think you're having, um, I think you're having and are going to have a huge impact on the world with your, both your inventions and being that unreasonable emp- empath, <laughs> empathetic, unreasonable man. I've got an idea for you. And I think what you should do when you do generate revenues and mm-hmm. profits from these inventions, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure will come. 
I think what you need to do is create an incubator called Emergence to bring on board creators who want to be inventors. Great idea. To harness these skills, the skills that you have had so well honed and trained with the discipline and that you've got that we know exists in plentiful supply within the creative departments of the world, yeah. yet are not being put to purposeful projects yeah. uh, at the scale we need. And if we need scale and speed of change to help us f- avoid the need for interstellar p- space travel mm-hmm. and multiplanetary life, we do need new solutions to the problems that we're facing. And I mm-hmm. think with your philosophy and your energy and your enthusiasm and guidance through an incubator called Emergence, I think we could get there. So that's my challenge to you. I, I love it. I think it's a great idea. I would love to do that. I mean, I, I, I really believe that there is, a, there is a failure in education around that. All of the, well, we see a massive startup ecosystem, often founded by people who've studied business, MBAs, commercial, finance mm-hmm. qualifications, you do see you do see a lot of creative people doing that, but they probably could be better skilled and better educated before they before they do it. Yeah, agree. I've said this, mentioned this to you before the interview, but also I've said it to the other guests I've interviewed, the storytellers, the difference makers, the domain experts. So I am rather than just doing these as singular interviews, I am wanting and willing and inviting the guests to take part in what I'm calling random collisions. I spoke to someone the other, the other day, a, a guest coming up, a Hollywood producer, actually, a very interesting character called Michael Blom, an inspirational man. And he said, it's not really random collisions. It, it's, you're, you're doing, these are intentional collisions. I said, yeah, but random collisions sounds better than intentional collisions. So my intent, intentionality, is to create these random collisions to engineer them and bring people together with completely different mindsets, experiences and perspectives on the world. Because I think when you bring people together with those different unique perspectives and skills and passions to talk around problems in a design thinking environment type workshop, really interesting ideas can emerge and new relationships can form. Mm -hmm. And who knows what happens when that occurs. And and your conversations with the people you've spoken to around One Hailer Mm -hmm. is evidence that that's how innovation and and invention happens or emergence occurs. So maybe my random collisions is just a process, an experiment in emergence. Mm -hmm. So I'd invite you to be part of that if you're up for it. Absolutely, absolutely. It's... It's so, it's one of those important things in life to never assume that you're the the guy other people want to meet. I want to meet other people who are, are going to influence me and and yeah. teach me something. So I, I I love that. I was listening to the I've listened to the 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 last two podcasts as well with Jennifer and Kat, and I found them both absolutely fascinating human beings. Um, yeah, really nice. really great. Very different, but but really interesting. So I think when they collide together, maybe, you know, I've said to them already, you know, I'm just looking, I'm going to be the first collision event is with Jennifer and Dr. Merritt Moore, who is one of my early guests, a quantum physicist ballerina currently working. I I listened to that. She's amazing. Yeah, she's something else. And so we're going to be getting on a call in, I think, on the 3rd of February, that one. So, yeah. 
if you're if you're up for joining that, you're more than welcome. No, I love it. Quantum physics is another one of my little side hobbies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's yeah, that's that's wonderful. No, I'd love to be involved in anything like that. I think what you're trying to do with the the network and sort of allowing allowing for the impossible to become possible is mm-hmm. great idea. Great way to allow for say, emergence. Uh, I don't have any answers. All I'm doing is sort of looking at see how I can bring people together and see what answers or solutions emerge. So there you go. But my final question for you, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's part of the process, is who do I interview next? Okay, so I I have, I have a name. I haven't asked. I haven't asked her if I can say say her name, but I'm going to anyway. So I, over the course of my career, and certainly in the last three or four years, I've worked on a consulting basis with the team at Expedia. Mm -hmm. So there is one of the senior directors at Expedia is called Angelique Miller. And Angelique runs the internal creative team at Expedia. It's called Media Studio. And it is just the most incredible, effectively a startup within a massive tech company. It's one of the best agencies I've ever come across. It is so beautifully run and managed and led by Angelique. And she has created what must be the most diverse and inclusive team of any creative agency in in the world. The team come from, there there are people from Peru, Italy, Spain, South Africa, China, Australia, such diversity. And and she's effectively a female founder, but founding this incredible team within this great big organization and having such an incredible influence on that organization and on sustainable travel, which is one of the big the big aspects of Expedia. It's a, it's, Expedia is one of the great tech companies that I'm not always a big fan of huge technology companies, but it's a, it's it really is a great company. It, it treats people well and it gives people an awful lot of freedom to do great things and angelique is one of the the smartest and most amazing leaders in my environment well so there's you, a name when this when what i i've said to people for it's when the podcast goes live and you can share it with them you then ask them and make the introduction and see if they're up for it yeah and she's in austin texas a lot because they have a big headquarter there so perfect there you go Excellent. Well, thank you, Don. I really appreciate your time, your energy, your inspiration, um, your passion, and really look forward to just watching as these world-changing ideas become manifest. Thank you, mate. And I really appreciate your time and, and support for me over the years. It's been, I'm very glad that we have stayed in touch and stayed friends all these decades, actually. I was yeah, going to say years, but decades. And it's definitely, we need to get a beer at some point. Somewhere, ideally New York, Austin or Edinburgh, one of the two, maybe even London. I'll I'll meet you somewhere soon. All right, Mark, thank you. Okay, then. All right, cheers. Okay, that's all for now, folks. Now, here's my ask of you. Please follow this podcast on Apple or Spotify or whatever player you use. Also, please subscribe to our new Random Collisions newsletter. We really are working to build a global community of action takers, action engines of people that really care about the problems that need solving. Thank you very much, and see you next time.